Good morning, diners and travelers and all you food food curious out there. Yeah. Um, we just returned from a, a brilliant symposium in uh, Galway, Ireland, uh, where we interviewed a number of leading figures on the culinary scene, uh, lots, starting with the lo- lots, of, lots of them. So expect the same. Yeah, there's 60. For the next two weeks. There was, I think, 60 uh, global star chefs or something like that, and about a 1,000 people in attendance at the conference from all over the world. Um, we had the people from Bali. We had people from where um, Brazil. We had people from uh, Berlin. We, I mean, you just name it. Uh, Australia, three, Melbourne. Yeah, three, three, three people got the prize for coming the furthest. But there were two people from Africa who were pretty close. They were close too, yeah. So anyhow, so anyway. but the, the keynote speaker is the, the brilliant, well-known chef Alex Atala from uh, Brazil, and um, he he's always he did a presentation and he got everybody thinking, and he always does that. He's a very profound man, and, and we and love him. And it, it, it turns out this will surprise you when you get it. In the interview itself, but he was uh, he was originally from Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway here, here's here's our good friend and hero, Alex Atala. Okay, you're live. We're going to be talking to Alex Atala, who is um, probably the brightest star in many a chef's planets. Everyone tries to emulate him, and uh, he does wonderful things with his native products from Brazil and from the Amazon. All of this I want to talk to him about, but Alex, you were the keynote speaker at this event, uh, and the topic was migration. First, though, tell us about your restaurant. Hello. Um... Have been in 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 Ireland, being being food on the edge, has been a, a, a emotional experience talking about migrations, because my grandparents uh, are Irish, so <laughs> so they migrate to South America, and, and and so I'm half Palestinian, half Irish, uh, and, and be here is, is the, and talk about the migration is, is, is something very deep for me. This is something very, in a way, emotional. Uh, 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 talking about future food, that was my main topic on my presentation. And I try to talk to people or make to them understand what, what we think or what we suppose could be future food back on 50 years ago. And in that time, supposedly, yes. nowadays we we was eating pills like astronauts, <laughs> and that didn't happen. What we eat today, it is good and healthy food, and we are demanding it. We are work on it. Uh, less processed food, organic food, healthy food. What what will be in fifty years in the future? Is the coach making any 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 guess? But I have my point of view, which the future food is not a. It is simple. It is we as a consumers we we have a, a power, the power to choice. So if we didn't buy, we didn't cook, we didn't serve, we didn't eat ingredients which is not according with our ethical values, we create a new market demand. Food industry is clever enough to understand and offer us exactly what we want. We, as a consumer, will have a voice. We, as a consumer, will have a will have, will have a power, and, and we might use it. I do believe the future food is simple like this: just say no for the bad things. Yeah, you you were in enabling in. Uh, individuals' creativity and what they could possibly produce as the food for the future. But there, there's another aspect I wanted to talk to you about. You are known for uh, your understanding of uh, products from the Amazon, and um, you are a champion 
of these products and of the Amazon. Uh, you have a couple of things to confront right now, just a few minor things, like the Amazon is called the lungs of the universe, and people have been setting fire in, in the Amazon. I wanted you to tell us about that and also about what effects will we anticipate on the Amazon with climate change. Well, this is a very complex question. <laughs> but idea. Okay, just I'm going to try to to be very short and very precise in few points. First of all, we always have fire in Amazonas, spontaneous fire, because yeah. during the dry season we have high temperatures and fire happens spontaneously. But we are under a new political situation. And lots of uh, oppositions or opposite points of view. Yes. And people make the fire bigger because there's much more political, economical interest behind this huge, huge natural disaster. So every time when we talk about the fire in Amazonas, we have to concern a few things. First of all, the fire was in there ever. Why people start to talk more and more? Why the fire became so big this year? I swear, there's bad ideas or bad people behind it. Yes. Um, which is a shame for us, Brazilian. The uh, natural disasters become a, a political platform. But is it economic? Because people want to uh, reap benefits that they were not entitled to from the Amazon. Well, Amazon is big, really big. Just Brazilian Amazonas fits three times whole entire Europe. This is the size yeah, three times three times bigger than whole Europe. So, so, so even if you think it, Amazonas has been burned the size of uh, France for Amazonas, it is not a big amount, but it is important. Every small piece is from Amazonas. It is impossible because, as you said, it's the lung from the planet. So we might protect Amazonas. Protecting the Amazonas is not only trying to understand the problem with the fire. In my point of view, protecting the Amazon is not only protecting the sea, the lands, or the forest. It's protecting the man who lives in there. Yes. And food chain can be a super important uh, support for it. Food chain is powerful. Food chain is, 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 is rich. And we might be thinking about biodiversity. So when you're thinking about, when you talk about biodiversity, there's no value. There's no meaning. But when you taste biodiversity. This is can have a new meaning. So to understand better uh, uh, what happens in Amazonas, I propose to people to taste Amazonas and give a new value for our biodiversity. Try to understand uh, uh, how, how powerful is, 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 is our daily action, which is cooking and eating. Mm -hmm. yeah. um. Now, um, do you feature a lot of the products in your restaurant? Yes, beside the restaurant, we run a foundation. Yeah, it's called it, yeah, it, it's called it Foundation. Our main focus is supporting local people through their own ingredients. So I'm going to name it one of them, or few of them. It's difficult for you to understand because okay. it's, it's Portuguese, but uh, we have a kind of chili that we produce it with the Banua people. Banua. Yeah, Banua is indigenous. They, they, they are yes. indigenous people. And I have a wild mushrooms from Amazonas, mm. from, from Yanomami people. We have a wild vanilla uh, from Kalunga people. Uh, we, we, we have some, some beautiful uh, projects. The main, the main goal of this, the, this project is do not transform traditional people in food producers. It's transforming indigenous people proud to be local. And, and through this, uh, gave to us a beautiful flavor. Make a little money, send back without any benefits for us. All benefits. In sense of money, but also in sense of uh, their own culture, their own health, their own education. So, 
We have been doing beautiful things in Brazil. Transforming or putting light in people and ingredients that nobody did before. But this is still just a drop in the ocean. As I said, as I told you before, Amazonas is huge. And even if I try to, to do everything that we have been doing bigger and bigger and bigger, will be not enough. Amazonas need all of us. Well, I, ta listening to you, I wonder why the, the, the people, I forget what they're called now, who are in charge of exporting Brazilian products sent us such boring things. <laughs> yeah, this is unfortunately a shame for us Brazilian. Brazil don't know how to export our culture how to offer the world good flavors, give value for small producers or our native ingredients. Uh, other countries have been doing better. Just a, a good example is Peru. Peru, 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 yeah. yeah Peru has been doing in a fantastic way the, to show the world not only the recipes, but the ingredients. And the ingredients Um, Peru has been doing very well uh, uh, the promotion of the, the, the flavors and the, uh, and, the, and, the, and the ingredients. But the beautiful thing, which I really admire more and more Peru, they transform food chain in a very important support for local people. It is, it is, it is, it is a social too that they are using. And I hope Brazil be inspired by Peru and do the same. How do we make that happen? I mean, Peru even had a, a busload of us journalists in there. You know, it took us all around. And uh, we saw the Potato Museum. We saw all this, learned all this stuff. How can we get Brazil to move like that? I don't know how to answer. We keep trying to to show to Brazilian governors or politicals how important it is promoting our biodiversity, our flavors, our culture. But unfortunately, it didn't happen. I don't know. Sorry if I can answer you in a, in a, in a specific way, but we have been trying. Well, you are certainly doing your best. You're inspiring everybody. And, and, and listeners, he's much beloved by all of us in the, uh, in the food and hospitality community because he's so nice and he's so respectful of every other culture as well as his own. I, I thank you for being you. <laughs> thank you for having me and to give to us Brazilians a little opportunity to share our love, our flavor, our culture with you. Thank you. You're, you're amazing. <laughs> you, you really are. You, um, and, and you're upbeat about it. We, sh we should mention that Alex's great, greatly famous restaurant called Dom, D-O-M, is in Sao Paulo, and he's been as high as four or five in the world's 50 best rankings for, for, for a long, long time. So it should be on the list of places that you go, and this is a man you should always listen to. And two of the Aussies who were in attendance at the event are coming up right after the break. So stay with us and we'll be right back. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back, and uh, I always have a little bit of my heart still in Australia, uh, Melbourne in particular, which is where we were living, and, but also Sydney, which was always the, the exciting big city. Um, we have two chefs now, um, Ben Shrury, uh, who was like super, super, superstar chef, um, who will talk to you about he, uh, he, indigenous he, ingredients. What his, he calls his, it state, for, what did he call it? 
his rest, his restaurant is Attica. Attica, and, and, and it's in it's in Melbourne. Melbourne, and, and, and it's a tough ticket. It is. But Mark Best is the other chef who's from Sydney, but I think he's doing something, and he'll tell us about. He's doing something all over the place. I'm not sure he has a restaurant anymore, but he he was one of the young guns who started to put Australia on the world dining scene. So he obviously has a f- fine perspective that you'll find very interesting. So so here's Ben and here's Mark. And if they sound like rivals, that's because the cities they come from uh, have a great rivalry going on between them. But it's fun. I mean, they, they like, like each other very much. Ben Sui and Mark Best, welcome to On The Menu Radio. Hello, how are you going? How are you? Um, they, we're going to ask you to, to plug in your perspective, uh, since you're both presenters. We actually ran the, the show, didn't you, Mark, <laughs> yesterday. Everybody's, he's become famous, listeners, because he brought the schedule down to the line, only running one minute over, <laughs> which is very unusual for this kind of event. Um, I'm, I'm interested in, 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 we've never been able to get into uh, Ben Shrewery's restaurant because it's so popular, and every time we're in Melbourne, um, I think it's, co- I mean, it's full, and we can't uh, get in. Uh, so uh, tell us, is your menu totally based on um, a, a native uh, Australian uh, ingredients and, and techniques? Well, it, it almost is completely based on native indigenous Australian ingredients. Yes, it is. Um, we don't serve any protein that doesn't exist on, on our country, on our huge island. Um, and uh, as much as we can, we use the plants and the, the fruits and the seeds and the, all of the spices that we have. We don't use any from outside, really. Um, I mean, we're waiting on certain plants to come to be commercially produced by Aboriginal people, like the Murnong, which I touched on today, which is the yam daisy, the tuba. We're waiting for that to come on so that we can replace potatoes with that. Um, in terms of it being um, a, a, an Aboriginal technique menu, it's not. It's uh, We're very much inspired by, um, by First Nations culture and cooking techniques, um, but... Um, we we're working, you know, with the ingredients in the way that we know how as well. We're learning from First Nations people, but we're certainly not copying directly what what they've done. And they've done many great things in food. Um, um, that said, you know, there have been particular dishes that have been directly inspired by meeting an Aboriginal elder. Uh, in the case of Uncle um, Noel Butler, he taught me how to grill um, oysters over the fire in a very specific way, and. So we, we attribute that dish to him on the menu and talk about his influence on me. And the blood clams, right? And the blood clams, yeah, the, the bimblers, yeah. Um, and so there's a, there's a lot that I've learned, um, but we also still are a creative restaurant that is developing its own cuisine as well within this um, idea of what Australian cuisine is. We went to one um, indigenous restaurant, and I don't remember where, um, as you know, we, we lived in Australia, and um, may, may have been Edna's table. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and my my question is, having lived there and experienced it, um, the, I I don't. I think I might have seen one Aboriginal person in, in all of Geelong. Uh, and not till I went into Alice Springs and, and further afield did I encounter any indigenous culture, really, um, and let alone food, except for that rare occasion. Um, who are your customers? What? Who are you aiming this message at? Well, I I come from New Zealand. I'm not an Australian. I'm still a New Zealander. Um, I don't have Australian citizenship. I do feel a strong connection to the country, um, and my connection comes through through um, you know my experiences with Indigenous culture in New Zealand, passed on to me by the New Zealand Maori. Um, growing up in New Zealand, Indigenous culture was a part of everyday life. We never would even talk about it the way that we're talking about it now. So I was around Maori culinary techniques and cooking traditions and culture and language. My mother spoke Te Reo, and and. Um, 
And so when I came to Australia, that really felt like something that was deeply lacking. And, um, and this sort of you know, immersion into this different world that's existed for tens of thousands of years, this world of the First Nations people of Australia, has been a very slow and long burn for me. I didn't have any confidence about being in Australia in the beginning. You know, I'd, I experienced racism. Um, you know, I've, I've still witnessed that in Australia. It exists. It's connected to the food as well. Um, in terms of you know our people, that the people that dine at Attica, um, you know, it's majority of them are Australians from all different walks of life and all different backgrounds, including Aboriginal people, of course, but including all of the waves of migration that have made Australia how as great as it is in the modern times in the last you know a few hundred years. Um, and we have, interestingly, we have a restaurant which appeals to, even though it costs a lot of money to come to Attica, people save to come to Attica, and it's not just the wealthy that come. Um, and so really this idea, though, of Attica and this, this ability to have a conversation about Australia is based at non-Indigenous Australia. It's not, you know, I don't need to lecture Aboriginal people on their own culture. It's the last thing they need. And... Uh, um, we need to listen to them, but but for the rest of us, we do need to learn a lot more about. And, and food gives us that opportunity. And we feel like we're leaving you out of this, Mark. Um, uh, you you have a, had an interesting history and career in um, the in culinary hospitality field. Uh, where are you now? I had the, the, the poorest possible start uh, as an electrician in the gold mines of Western Australia. It's probably not the greatest start to a culinary career, but, you know, there are, life is funny and there are many different reasons. I mean, probably the word passion is one of the most overused words in our industry, and uh, I certainly had no passion for cooking. It was just something that... Uh, we did. It was a it was a practical thing to an everyday thing. Um, we were from the country, so all of those things we we gardened, we we killed uh, we killed our own animals. We you know we cooked you know, and um, so when I came into actually running away from my uh, my electrical career and got into cooking as a means of escape, that I found myself actually pretty well placed. You know, I had um, an enormous amount of skill and. Um, and knowledge and palate and taste memory and uh, cultural memories as well, which was, you know, still using um, my family's from the Brossa Valley. Um, so they're Polish immigrants from about 80, 1850s. They were Lutherans, so escaping, well, they said they're escaping persecution, but actually they were Luddites, they were part of the Weaver rites, and, you know, um, so they escaped. And um, But they brought all of that, uh, that Polish, uh, Slovenian, history with them, so hence is why in what I love is that all the metwurst, all those cured meats from that, that era, um, the dilled gherkins and everything, so it's pretty interesting going maybe two years ago with Arlene Stein from Tewa, we went did uh, Warsaw, and finally it was like this coming home because I went there and I was just like wow, I recognise I recognise everything here. Went to the markets and everything. It was just like, yeah, it was like it was pretty amazing. And it's like I've been to Germany f before, and I thought that it was half German, and then I realised, and I looked back, and that they were actually this uh, on the border of uh, Germany and uh, Poland. And so this uh, was was pretty interesting. But one of those things, yeah, funny old life. Now your your first restaurant was part of a new a new wave of Australian cooking. We, we discovered, I think, that you, you founded it in 1999. So we were there for the first time studying food for the, Olymp for the Olympics Games visitors in, in the year 2000. And you were open then, but you've gone on to great success in having dining establishments. Go, th go through some of that experience, if you would. So 1999, I'd um, just come back. I'd worked at Arpege for Alain Passade. Um, I'd worked at Le Manoir um, and uh, come back he's and... Uh, he is. Still is. Um, <laughs> Raymond Blanc, sorry. For, the, for our dear listeners, Raymond Blanc is a character. Um, so um, anyway, um, yeah, when you came to me in 2000, that was a tough year. I mean, that was the year of the uh, Sydney Olympics, and we barely survived financially. We were, what happened to the Olympics was that everyone went to the Olympics, and we were thought there was going to be these rivers, rivers of gold, 
you're not going to fly and we're going yeah okay we're right now and then we we were newly opened I think we opened in April of 99 and uh, you know my son was born three months later and then it was like tough times you know and we're trying to establish ourselves as a restaurant we had no idea what we we're doing like most people that start restaurants you know full of uh, passion there's that word again and uh but, but see, when you saw us in 2000, that was a particularly troubling time because our uh, turnover went to almost zero as the locals left, left the city from the great, you know, sporting hordes were coming in. So they <laughs> left and all the rest went out to Homebush and were ate hot dogs or whatever they did out there and no rivers of gold. It was like a, the current drought there. Anyway, so we barely, we barely survived that. But what did happen is um, I think I got another review. So we got a bit of a review and uh, someone forget who it was, but uh, we may have got two hats in the Good Food Guide, something like that, and we sort of got a, a bit of a kick start, and um, I was by no means, uh, had established any sort of culinary identity myself, like most people, we, we emulate our heroes, or we try to, we attempt to, we try and put together a patchwork of all these different ideas of, you know, people that we've worked with, people that we admired, it was pre-internet even at that stage in Sydney so we're just reading books and the hero was the person that had just come back with a fistful of menus from the south of France you know Tony Bilson you know he'd like work on those for the next five years you know until he went back again but as inspiration but so but eventually I think um, as Ben is saying it's, it's this um, this uh, I hesitate to use this word as well this journey but um, they're more articulate than this, but anyway. So um, we can we can we have to work through it. This this uh, thing to establish your own culinary voice, it's a very long road, you know. And you never actually quite get there, and you you think you're there, and then you're not, you know. And it all goes away. So um, one of the phrases that's associated with me, other than being eternally bitter, is my eternal <laughs> dissatisfaction. And and that's just an idea that you know I think I will be only. Uh, this, a, a, a small moment in time where I'll actually be satisfied with how things are and I go yeah and then next minute it all just blows away again this ephemeral thing blows away and I'm dissatisfied again we have to all start again about everything so I drove absolutely everyone insane as we're trying to pursue you know what it, what it was to be an Australian chef and how to establish yourself and as I said you know Ben's talk this morning was incredible about Indigenous Australia and First Nation people and um, it really was incredible but that also you know since then we've got nearly I don't know 135 something different language groups living and thriving in Australia and so also there's that cultural aspect that being in the middle of a city of five and a half million people in the inner city um, you have to respond to that as well so as a chef and so I think the biggest one for me was just recognizing as a chef that I'm you know we're a western nation uh, that's very much part of Southeast Asia and uh, yeah. responding to my time and place which is inner city and everywhere that I ate and all of the people that I came across and all of the produce that comes with it and that was what we did and established the voice of my, what is Australian cuisine who knows but you know mine was one expression of it Back in the day, as they say, an expression I absolutely hate, but I, I lived in Australia during the era when jet, true jet service in the air was first introduced from Melbourne to Sydney and Sydney to Melbourne. And you, you could go on a slow plane, a prop, and it would take two hours. If you went on a jet, it cost an hour. And one great wag wrote in the Australian newspaper, if God had meant Sydney and Melbourne to be an hour apart, he would have built them closer together. <laughs> you, 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 can't, you can't escape thinking about Australian cuisine without the rival, recognizing the rivalry between these two, both magnificent cities. I, I'm going to put you up against one another and say why you think you should go to dine in Sydney or whether, why you think you should go and dine in Melbourne. I'm glad to be starting this off. Um, <laughs> Because I, I'd just like to follow uh, follow up on what Mark was saying. Um, you know, I moved to Australia in 2002, so that's two or three years after you started, and I was 25. And um, and Mark, the restaurant and the person, was a huge inspiration to me uh, because I'm not the most vanilla person, as you might have um, you might recognise. And I like people that take risks, and I, I'm inspired by people that have the courage of their convictions. And Mark 
Best the Chef and also Mark, the restaurant, to me, it really had the courage of its convictions more than any other restaurant that I've encountered in Australia. It was singular. It was chef-owned. It had no big finance behind it. It was humble in that respect, but it was it was driven, and it wanted to do things to shake things up, you know, not because it wanted to be a provocative restaurant for just being a provocative restaurant. It's because it was something, you know, some part of Mark's personal personality, passion, and, and you know, I could tell that he was a person that just wasn't the same as everybody else. He had his own way of thinking and his own language in food. And, um, and I mean, so much so that one, on one visit to Mark um, in the early days of Attica, I was walking to Mark and I stepped off the footpath and I got hit by a bus. And, um, and it could have killed me, but I got flung in front of the bus by probably 15 metres and, um, and I picked myself up and I think it was broken, fortunately. I was pretty knocked around, probably concussed. And I, I, it was the first time I'd been to Mark, actually. I, and I wandered like, sort of the 20 minutes that it, it took me to get from being hit by the bus to the restaurant. And it was about 5 o'clock and the restaurant wasn't open for an hour and I sort of just stood out the front and maybe lamely tapped on the glass. And I didn't know... Uh, mark at that point, I don't believe. And the restaurant came, to, the staff came to the door and they let me in and I explained what had happened and they, um, they sat me down and gave me a whiskey, I think, or a stiff drink. And, um, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I forgot my worries and I forgot the pain that I was in from being hit by the bus and I experienced the most incredible meal. Now, I don't think there's many restaurants in the world that after being hit by a bus that you could sit down and, and, and enjoy an incredible meal. And it was many, many highlights. And I, but I remember with, with, with Mark's cooking, for me, it was always about these little things that were twisted, you know, and, and things that were spun on the head that really inspired me. And there was a, there was a cheese course, a goat's cheese course in that, on that menu with white pepper on it. Now, that sounds, that doesn't sound like much, except when you ate this thing, it was unbelievable and it drove you crazy that you hadn't thought of it. You know, there was a cleverness there. And, and that, that was inspiring because that's what I'm looking for when I eat. You know, I'm looking for those things. Not in any jealous ca- capacity, just in a way I, I, I'm going to... It's a search for truth, right? You know, it's a search for truth. You know. It is, yeah. Who, who's somebody who you can relate to who's doing something that's original and thought-provoking? And, um, and so, you know, back to your question on the, on the rivalry... I don't. I haven't felt a sense of rivalry with Sydney, being that I have a Melbourne restaurant. But I have observed that there's a cu- they're acutely different cities to run restaurants in. You know, Melbourne, in my view, is a little bit more. Um, I want to be careful about what I say. Um, it's not conservative. No, it's more. Tr- it's it's more. It's it's almost. Um, I would describe it like this. Melbourne diners, if something's of good quality, they will stick with the restaurants through thick and thin. And we have a lot of really old, really great restaurants. And, you know, Attica is going to be in its 15th year next year. Um, And so they keep coming. And sometimes I felt, you know, as I watched my friends run restaurants in Sydney, that the diners didn't always stay with them. Sometimes they would swarm to the new thing. And Melbourneian diners, they don't do that. They, They do go and support the new thing. But they then return to... The people that have, you know, built the foundations of cuisine, if you like, in the city, and I, I so that that's not a rivalry thing; it's more of an observation. Yeah, I think it it could be an easier city to run a, a restaurant in Melbourne. Do you agree, Mark? Um, well, having been to restaurant as a restaurateur and failed, I would say failed. Well, pay modern, no, but it, yeah, it wasn't a financial success. It was a critical success. I loved the restaurant, but uh, there, maybe there are other there are other structural reasons why. It didn't work, but um, and I think I agree with your observation. I mean, Sydney, by definition, is uh, more physically beautiful. I think I could say that safely. Um, its harbour is defined by its harbour and its actual physical beauty. I mean, it's warmer, more temperate climate, and people people are out and uh, quite relaxed. I think and a, a bit flighty, a bit a bit flash. Yeah, you know, they're a little bright. You know, Melbourne's known for its uh, palette of greys and dark charcoals. Whereas Sydney's, you know, whatever, mostly skin. A lot of skin in Sydney. So, is it, you is, know. is it more superficial in Sydney? Is huh? It, do you think it's more superficial than Melbourne? Only a superficial person would observe that. But I don't think. But, but um, no, I don't think it's. I don't think it's superficial. I mean, you. What I'm actually shouting at Mark is yeah. I'm asking him whether he thinks it's more superficial in Sydney than it is in Melbourne. 
It, it could be. It could be. I mean, uh, I think Sydney people like bright and shiny things, and they tend to gravitate towards them, and the, the next bright and shiny thing will take their uh, attention, and off they go. So um, there's enormous uh, new wealth in Sydney as well. I think um, Melbourne is um, establishment, you know, right since the beginning. It also has, um, you know... Uh, I want to say it's uh, I guess uh, it's, it's also something to do with its weather and it's also something to do with its migration that it was uh, populated by Greeks and Italians a long time and that's really drove and that's where the coffee scene from Australia came from from Melbourne that's really from that that wave of immigration and you've had smaller waves of immigration since but Sydney is the first port of call for all new arrivals and that's why Sydney is constantly changing. Um, you know, we had even Chinese culture has changed because it was um, old school uh, Cantonese immigrants, and now it's just waves and waves and waves of uh, of mainland Chinese from all different provinces. So even the Chinese cuisine scene is changing down to tiny regional, you know, sub restaurants within. Chinese culture, so that's absolutely fascinating. And um, you know, you can go out to um, Western Sydney now and have the most amazing Afghani meal from from people that have come in six or seven years ago. Afghani flatbreads, you would go, well, where where am I? So this type of thing has always happened to Sydney, and that's why it's so vibrant. And you know, the contemporary scene that where we work in is also changing. But I think it's this other ethnic subculture that is so vibrant in Sydney which keeps it alive and makes it entirely different to, to Melbourne. I'm, I'm delighted to see that Chef is wearing his blunnies. <laughs> when, when, when you're down on the first thing to say is it's worth the ride for the, for the tourists, for the well, I, I, I might say that I'm uh, very impressed to see that you're both wearing all birds. That's a New Zealand invention. This is, this is the latest new model, and they are really cool. Very smart. Very smart. I'm, I'm jealous. Good, merino, good New Zealand merino wool right there. <laughs> there, there you go. So, 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 so when you go out there, you have, you have to get blunnies on your feet. If, if you want, you can get all birds on the internet anyway, so you don't need to go there to get them. And you have to buy an Akubra hat in Melbourne. I bought a straw Akubra hat, which is my favorite of all the hats that I own. And it, and it neatly says, assembled in Australia. But it's but it, <laughs> but be, be, because it's made out of straw. And the real Akubra is made out of rabbit felt. Yes. To, to go back and read again, it, it's worth the ride. There are exciting things happening with people who we're talking to today and, and their colleagues behind the, in the kitchen doing just wonderful and amazing things. We thank you so much for joining us and sharing your ideas today. Sweetheart, you have any more questions? I want to promise that I can get into Attica next time we're in Melbourne. <laughs> I promise. You've got it on record. I, I do remember helping you cut the line in front of the uh, everyone yesterday. I put, just pushed straight in and got her a plate and got her to sort it out. <laughs> Thank you very much. Lovely to talk to you both. Yeah, it was fun. You guys are fun to talk to. <laughs> well, I'm, gonna, I'm absolutely busting. If you think Mark and Ben were thoughtful people, wait till you hear our next guest, Alan Jenkins, who holds the august position of editor of the Observer Food Monthly, which comes out with the Sunday newspaper every fourth Sunday in England. And this is a man with a great deal of thought behind everything he says. And he's written a couple of books as well. And he's a good friend. He's a dear, dear friend. I mean, I, I've just had a soft spot in my heart for Alan since I met him in Lima on a media tour. How many years ago was that? A long time ago. So it was great to connect up with him and find out what his latest thinking is. So here's... Alan Jenkins. Alan Jenkins, you're one of the finest storytellers I have met in a long time. Um, you, you've just been telling us about uh, some of the um, 
uh, let's call it the benefits, probably uh, more emotional and mental benefits um, from your job, which is, is editor? Editor of the Observer Food Monthly, and uh, it's a food magazine. Editor of the Observer Food Monthly. It's a monthly magazine that comes with the Observer newspaper. Um, it's published on the Guardian website. Um, we were talking about, um, we, I just had an awards the other day. I'll tell you another story, which is about outstanding achievement. And outstanding achievement would normally go to an eminence grease in the hospitality yeah. industry. Mm-hmm. would be someone, you know, I don't know, who with some massive you know, kind of long story of being brilliant in you know, either as a cook or as a front of a house or you know, some extraordinary figure and what we decided to do and it's partly with readers but we, we vote for this only um, there's a group called the Refugee Community Kitchen and they are four I mean, almost like post hippie festival people and they run a camp in Calais Calais is the last place where everybody kind of goes. All the Kurds, various people, and they kind of come to Calais. And it's the most inhospitable place on earth. It's deliberately made unwelcome. It has fences like you can't even, like Trump would literally, couldn't believe the wonder of these fences. But they're forever and they're whole. And these guys, with volunteers, like one of my staff volunteers for them, and I will know volunteer for them, I think, they have fed 2.4 million meals without anyone knowing about it, really. And I think, well, sometimes I hear about Massimo doing a few things, but like, the, no one hears of these people. So my job is to suddenly bring them into a room and thank them and to make them feel appreciated and to hopefully some people will donate and some people will go along and see what life is. And that sometimes food is about really simply putting food in somebody's hand when they have nothing else and they go every day. And it's important, it's every day. They never fail them, ever. And there's, I, I think they have something like on a rotor of like sort of 20,000 volunteers. And it's an extraordinary thing. And I, and I think, well, Michelle Rue, Refugee Kitchen. This year, <laughs> maybe this year, you know, Refugee Kitchen. You know, your awards program is, is a, a, an important function of the magazine. Yes, it's a way that we celebrate and support, you know, um, it, we're a national newspaper, so we, we scour the country and we have readers who vote for us. So this year, for instance, readers voted, we have a food personality, readers voted for Jamie Oliver. This is a slightly difficult year for Jamie Oliver. It may not be an obvious choice, but I'll tell you a story about five years ago readers voted for Nigella and you know, like the chef community go why, she, why are they voting for Nigella now she hasn't done anything this year and I said well what she has done this year is she's got out of a car amongst a phalanx of photographers and walked into a court and defended herself against a billionaire who's trying to destroy her and I suspect like, she might not have written a cookbook but you know, she may actually be a food hero to a lot of people and a female food hero under attack so don't tell me about her books just listen to what readers do and it, it, the same thing happened this year with Jamie you know, he's closed some food businesses but readers it turns out who voted for him by many thousand more than the next person it's 20 years since Naked Chef Naked Chef changed cooking for men in my country. And it was young men who had never really cooked. And it was like really simple food. The great thing about the Italian thing is you don't have to make a sauce. You, you can just literally just put together tomatoes and peas and some pasta or something. And you can make dinner. And it made it sexy. He was this kind of good-looking kid with his kind of tussled hair and his like scooter. And you could relate to it. He was like a kind of, he was like Blur or something. He was like a pop star. And also, the next thing he did with the money he made is he opened a place called 15. And he took kids who had no future at all. And there are kids in London. There's a guy called, there's a restaurant called Trullo. There's a, you know, and there's a writer who writes for The Guardian called Anna Jones. The reason they have a career in food, the reason they have a life in food, the reason they have a life at all, I suspect, is because Jamie Oliver 
bet everything on this thing. And also, I heard today about people feeding school kids. Jamie Oliver, you dared take on the government and say, this, you can't keep feeding people this fried chicken, turkey twizzlers, we call them. <laughs> and so I believe that this year he's been under pressure and he's been, you know... West Virginia didn't like him much. <laughs> yeah, but, but I think also, but readers don't expect him to be able to run a national... He's a dyslexic kid. You know, he's a, you might be 40 now, but he's like, you know, he's dyslexic. He can't read books. You know, he can't do things. So how on earth could he run a business? What he can do is he can inspire. He has a line. He said, my job is to be, I have a great job. I'm on the bookshelf in your kitchen. And his book, whatever anyone says, his book this year on vegetarian cooking is the biggest selling book in the UK. He's popular. And it was, I think it was the same thing. I think it was the same thing about observer readers. And I think it's what, what we try to do is, is think for a second and not just celebrate celebrity, but think about emotion and support. And I just think they thought, Jamie Oliver, like, needs a hug for everything he's done. You know, there was a lot of this um, need for a hug and giving hugs a about this conference that we're supposed to be talking about here, um, uh, which uh, is Food on the Edge. Um, you were a presenter, and you talked about your book. And I was going to say we should mention, or we absolutely have to mention, that in addition to uh, your regular writing and editing job, actually it's more editing, I imagine. Yeah. An editor is a writer who gets promoted into management. And we're mostly completely ill-suited to it because writing is a solitary thing. But if you can kind of do it, you suddenly are managing teams and you're managing a million-pound budget and you're talking to Tesco, you know, some supermarket about sponsorship and you're doing all this stuff and you suddenly have like 20 people working for you and they, they're crying because their husband's been like vile to them or something. You think, how can I deal with this? I'm a writer. So, and then so what happens is because I was working on a weekly magazine, you become a writer who doesn't write. You don't have time for writing. What you're putting together is you're an impresario. You're putting together ideas and writers and photography, and then you're working out what else, you, how you can balance. If there's something quite raw, you have to balance it with something quite light. How, the, the, the skill of putting together a magazine. And I think when I came to the food magazine, I thought I had time to write. And someone came to me with a book offer, and I thought it's going to be a really simple book. It was literally just going to be a book about gardening, and it was going to be very undermanding. It was like, and I sat down and I started writing it, and I realised it wasn't as simple. The reason I look after a garden is because we were not looked after, and that became the germ, the seed, for one of another word, for the story. And I unearthed quite a lot of unsettling stuff, but I'm proud of it because I think it's often with these stories that child is made to feel shame and I believe that the child is the last person in that equation who should feel shame. The people who should feel shame are the people who are responsible for why that child is dying young. Now your, your second book, I haven't read yet, I read the first, your second book is, uh, you said lighter. Yes. And, and I guess in every way, because it's yes. called mourning. Yes. This to me was literally, I, you know, I had avoided therapy. I, I, when I was, you know, like 15 years ago, I did Freudian analysis. And I would go and do this thing, and you would like lie on this thing and lie on the bench while this guy like forensically took you apart. It was like he was an, you were an insect, and he would like, okay, can you walk with two legs? Can you walk, can you fly without wings? And I found it so... Disturbing. I didn't find healing from it. I just found this relentless going back to this place of pain, and then suddenly the 50 minutes is up, and you have to brick it up, and I and I have to be in the office in 15 minutes, and I'm the guy who makes everything okay, and I was like slightly broken by it. And luckily, what happened is he said something stupid one day, and I'd been doing it for five years. It was yeah, you know, I could have you know, literally bought cars or gone to Tibet or something on the back of it. And I felt a massive sense of relief. I thought, you don't get to say something stupid after I've spent tens of thousands of pounds with you. You get to say something smart or you're useless to me. And I started gardening. And I found healing and therapy in not speaking rather than speaking. 
And when I was writing the book, it was important to me to find a place of quiet. But it stuck with me, this book. My brother had died, and I had, you know, I found it hard to let the book go after the book was finished. So I decided deliberately, I think, to write a book about light. And, um, and it was a bit like, you know, you're kind of suddenly underwater and you, like, you break for the surface and you break free. And it's a book just of celebration, of light, of mourning. I interview people, I talk to psychologists and circadian rhythms and priests and philosophers. And it's, um, it's just a book of, you can dip in and out of it. And it's, I think it was my healing. I sent myself off to stay with Roddy Sloan for the midsummer on a remote island with the thing, and it meant that you know there was I was constantly surrounded by light and sun and energy, and I anyway get up early, and it's um yeah I think it's good I think it's a different audience. Strangely, you get letters from different people. I get very powerful letters from people who read plot. And I find them sometimes quite difficult to deal with because people feel they know you because they've read this thing and they send you screeds and some of them are screams of pain. Really? Other ones, other ones are like people who think they can fix you. Oh, I, you know, like you know, there's always the people who think they can fix you. And the readership of the book about the morning book is much easier to deal with. It's um, it's just a warm gentle appreciation. Yeah, I, I, I've interviewed um, people who've done memoirs, and um, I, I always think I should do that. People are always telling me I should do that. But I don't think that I really could have that kind of direct honesty mm. uh, and, and, and open up my private self to this, so I didn't do it. Well, since you're talking um, deeply of emotions and emotional impacts, and uh, we've just gone through this conference, how real do you think these comments are for most of the chefs, or do you think there's a lot of superficiality that's been expressed about the giving and the sharing and the nourishing? you think it's all possibly true? I think it's all possibly true, and I think in some instances it is true. And I think it's some, sometimes they're using a platform for various different reasons, but I think there's something real in there. I don't think every bit of it is real. I'm not very good at sitting for like six consecutive talks. I find it slightly exhausting. I have to come out and like just get some air. But um, as a network, I think what will be interesting is the next two days where we, a group of us, travel together and spend softer times here, and you're not presenting. I think chefs and writers are not natural public speakers. You know, that thing of suddenly standing up and there's like 500 people and they're anxious. So someone like Rezio Sanchez, who's an extremely accomplished chef, was, you know, like development chef at Noma. You know, it's just that she's anxious and your heart beats. And there are people who are good at it, and the people who are good are sometimes not the people who say the most interesting things. The people sometimes who say the most interesting things, somehow it, like, it breaks free from the thing that they intended to say. That actually happened a lot, I, I suspect, in these presentations. Yeah. Did you get that too? Yeah, I got that too. I think the people who are really good at it, they perhaps don't go as deep as to the people who find themselves saying something that they didn't really... Romy Gill, for instance, today, suddenly... I've known her for a while, and she suddenly... The word abuse appeared. And, yeah, this is... I know this woman. I support this. I wrote an intro to a book. I've never written an intro to a book, but she's a woman of color in a male-dominated industry, particularly, truthfully, the Indian restaurant industry is quite a male-dominated industry. So I've kind of... You know, my job is to support. That's how I see myself, to be there for people. And um, and I haven't heard that story, and I found it. I suddenly found myself slightly tearing. And I don't think she had any intention. She's there to sell a book. She's there to get people to buy a book of recipes. And I thought that there was an honesty that you can't disguise honesty. You can disguise many things like slickness and cleverness, and uh, you know, I think people who read it, their stuff too. I think it's very difficult to get emotion from it because they're just slightly automaton. I would prefer someone to just take a risk and see where they go. It may not work all the time, 
but I think it's more likely to work most of the time. Did you find any great revelations about the industry or anything related to that that came through? We're supposed to be discussing, uh, you know, well, migration, the food of the future and things like that. Did you find... Yeah. I always get... As soon as people talk to me about food of the future, I get very anxious <laughs> because it seems to me like when I kind of came in, when I came into no, but when I came into it, like I don't know, El Bulli was the food of the future, and then Heston was the food of the future. And if you look at it now, it looks like the Jetsons. Like nothing dates like the future. And so what I hope is for me that the future is a place where the foreign becomes more familiar and where kitchens become kinder. And that's what I hope for the future. I think we may be actually making some progress in that, yeah. uh, which is, um, but there's, I keep bringing up this, uh, you know, Kat Kinsman, her chefs with issue. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, I've seen her at Mad. I think there's some truth in it. But I think, I think we should stop. <laughs> Hey, 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 you're, you're far short of Charlie Trotter. Sorry? You're far short of Charlie Trotter. Charlie Trotter went on forever. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Well, here we are again, and it's starting to shape up really as one of On the Menu Radio's favorite people, <laughs> this particular show, because uh, we also love Darina Allen from Ballymaloo. Who, who you might call something like the Queen of Ireland. Yeah, exactly. And Darina has written yet another book, and um, she's written, how many, well, she says in the interview, uh, let's listen to Darina well, well, Allen. Well, the important thing is she, she, she pleads. For Ireland to be the yes, organic organic food destination on the planet, <laughs> and if she if she's in charge of it, don't be surprised if that's what happens. <laughs> oh, I did. Yes, yeah, I don't We're going to be talking again <laughs> to Darina Allen from Ballymaloo and author of a gazillion million books. <laughs> you just had another one published. Yeah. It's it's not like anybody needs another Darina Allen cookbook. But anyway, this, believe it or not, is number 19. And actually, uh, it's getting a really brilliant reaction because it's called One Pot Feeds All. So one pot, one roasting tin, one baking tray. You know, people are getting busier and busier and sort of racing home to the traffic, trying to, you know, grab the kids in the creche, trying to go to the supermarket, get a few ingredients, and then really knowing and wanting to cook something delicious for the family. But, you know, it's so hard to keep all the balls in the air, isn't it? Uh-huh. Now, uh, you, you gave many fine deliveries today um, and opinions. Um, let's, I want your reaction to the overall conference, its mission, and how, how halfway through now we've learned a lot of things. Um. Well, um, well done, J.P. McMahon, for bringing uh, this uh, Food on the Edge conference. This is the fifth year, I think, here in Galway. It's such a wonderful thing for Ireland. You know, all these uh, top chefs and cooks and food writers from all over the world coming to Ireland so we can give them, we can tempt them with the taste of what we have that's unique in this country. So, uh, And then they hopefully will go back and tell people what's happening in Ireland on the food scene and also they have a pen in their hand a lot of them so they can spread the words in that way too now um, Peter was particularly intrigued with one of your comments which is that um, Ireland has the ability and you can explain why to be the leading new northern cuisine <laughs> well yes well um, if Denmark could be, have headed up the uh, the food revolution in the last uh, decade and so on, uh, when hitherto that you sort of never even heard of uh, Denmark or Copenhagen in terms of uh, you know really good, uh, uh, really exciting food and how innovative and extraordinary that whole movement has been and how it's changed 
In fact, one restaurant has, it was instrumental, Noma in Copenhagen, was instrumental in changing the whole food culture in a whole, the whole Nordic region. But I was uh, telling people today, I just remembered actually while I was on that panel, that years, uh, years ago, when my mother-in-law, Myrtle Allen, who died at the age of 94 last year, uh, she was, a, of course, the vice president of the Eurotok, European Association of Chefs Association, and they had a meeting in Ballymaloo, and uh, then all these top chefs were coming from all over the world, and Myrtle, of course, her food uh, was, uh, she opened her country house hotel, uh, she, um, Myrtle opened her home, Ballymaloo House, as a country house hotel in the early 1960s. And she just cooked. She had no training whatsoever. Uh, she just cooked the food of her gardens and her farm and the food from the local area and the lovely fish and valley cotton. And that's what she served uh, to the guests, exactly the same food as she served her family and her friends. But anyway, she was very excited. We were all very excited. It was a very big thing for Ireland that the, all the European uh, Eurotok chefs were coming uh, for their meeting to Vanimanu. So for weeks before that, she, you know, gathered, uh, went and contacted her farmers, food producers, the cheesemakers. She told everybody that she wanted the most beautiful food to uh, to give these chefs a taste of what we had in Ireland that was unique. And, you know, carrageen moss and the wonderful fat prawns and wonderful lamb and, of course, our dairy products, all of that. And anyway... They came, and of course, a lot of these chefs, these Nordic chefs, had been um, doing very skilled chefs, you know, had been doing really well uh, in the Boko's Door and all of those competitions. And uh, they, but a lot of the time, they were actually uh, emulating what the other French chefs or Italian chefs were doing, using foie gras and, uh, you know, and and, uh, all of that kind of thing, truffles. And so, anyway, Martel, of course, was uh, serving, you know, the food of her farm and her region, her, I think the best that she could find that Ireland had to offer, and cooking it really simply. And so all these chefs came who can do all kinds of twiddles and bows and smarties on top and everything, really fancy food, and, you know, really fancy pants food. And so she just served these beautiful ingredients in prime condition, you know, so simply. And they were charmed by this. And I remember Klaus Meyer, who was, uh, of course, Renny Redzepi's um, a partner in Noma. And he was one of the uh, Euro Danish Eurotok chefs. He's a chef and a, a serious entrepreneur. And so he came and he thought, well, this is really interesting. This woman is just giving us a taste of what's in Ireland, what's unique to Ireland. And, you know, she's serving it very simply and all of that. And we're all loving it. She was like their grand mare. And so basically, and then he went back and he said, well, no, what are we like in Denmark? We have all kinds of things that are unique, you know, up near the Nordic Circle, all those cloudberries, all that amazing, uh, you know, preserved fish, all their breads, those Nordic breads, and so many things that are completely unique and wonderful. But like Ireland, they didn't have the confidence in many ways to serve their own their Danish food proudly. So he went back, he chatted to some of the other chefs, and out of that was eventually the spark. That was the spark. He told me himself for the actual, this food revolution that happened uh, in Denmark. So I'm thinking, well, honestly, why can't that happen in Ireland? I think Ireland can be the new food revolution. We have incredible produce, lot, you know, miles and miles of, of coast. So we've got lots of wonderful fresh fish and shellfish and seaweeds and all of that as well. Uh, we have, of course, we can grow grass like nowhere else in the world. <laughs> so our dairy products are our, our lamb and and our butter and our cream and our lamb and our beef are fantastic quality. We're really, you know, smiled on by Mother Nature here in Ireland. It's only a question of confidence. It's only a question of, if you like to quote Obama, yes, we can. Yes, we can if we really believe we can. And I know we have the raw materials to do it. Far too long. Sorry. No, no, I have, I have a suggestion. I, I, think, I think everybody should call the... Prime Minister of the Irish Republic and appoint Darina Allen Ministry of Food. <laughs> and, and I'm sure you could make it happen. Well, actually what I really want to see 
is I want to see Ireland the organic food island because there are very few other places on the planet right. that are actually so well placed to have be an actual island of organic food and think of the prosperity that would bring our farmers and the marketing tool it would be but apart and the health it would bring to our people and remember nowadays that the biggest craving in food worldwide is for food that people can really trust food that we know would nourish you rather than do you damage and think of ireland it's an island nation. We could do this. It couldn't be done overnight, but we could easily work towards it. And again, all we have to do is believe in it and we can do it. But I personally think that is the future for Ireland and future prosperity for our farmers and fishermen and everybody else. Ireland, the organic food island. It has quite a ring to it, doesn't it? <laughs> well, you've convinced me. <laughs> Well, I mean, <laughs> I think that um, I have a lot of I call happy places. I mean, um, San Sebastian, uh, Barcelona, uh, Rome, um, New Orleans. I think you have to add Galway to that Gal list. Galway is one of those. It's a really great place. But take your umbrella and your Macintosh. That's for sure. Uh, nice job, Food on the Edge. 2019. Absolutely, and thank you and so much. And we'll have more to come. Yeah, thank you so much to all the guests in today's program. And don't forget, the next two weeks are going to feature more personalities from the same event. So be sure to join us again, same time, same place, next week. And until then, bye-bye.